Welcome to the latest episode of Schneps Connects. This is Josh Schneps. Today, we're going to head on down to a 24-7 neighborhood, the Meatpacking District, located on the far west side of Manhattan, bordered by Chelsea to the north and the West Village to the south. We have with us today Jeffrey LeFrancois, the Meatpacking District's Executive Director, who brings with him a deep connection to the west side, the experience of serving as the BIDS Director of Operations and Community Affairs for four years. As executive director, Jeffrey is ultimately responsible to ensure the Meatpacking District remains a cutting edge, ever evolving neighborhood in lower Manhattan that has thriving retail, commercial and residential communities. So Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the role of uh, the Meatpacking District. Sure. Uh, well, I have been executive director of the bid for bid the business improvement district for the meatpacking district neighborhood for a little over three years. Um, and as you mentioned, I was director of operations and community affairs before that. And it, for everybody, it's been an interesting year and a half to say the yeah. least. Um, you know, when I took over, we were figuring out what the stride, sort of what the 2.0 of the meatpacking district would look like. Um, the bid became a bid in 2015. Um, we had some amazing programs and events um, between you know, then and, and now. And so what we've endured in the past couple of years has really set us on a new footing. Uh, my background is by way of government politics, went to Pace University in Lower Manhattan, worked my way up sort of government on the West side, working for a state assembly member Richard Gottfried and then Corey Johnson, council member Corey Johnson as his first chief of staff. Through that, I sort of found my way into the bid world and I, I jokingly call it my half step out of government because bids, business improvement districts are, um, they're quasi government entities, if you will. Um, we provide supplemental city services, sanitation, landscape, marketing, landscaping, uh, marketing, programming, the whole nine for a specific neighborhood. And my conversations daily are with the city. So that's sort of big picture, if you will. Well, I always feel the bids had their ear to the ground of the neighborhoods that they serve. So, and I feel like the meatpacking district has evolved tremendously, especially over the last, I would say, 20 years, because I remember graduating out of college, it literally was a meatpacking community mixed in yep. with what were, you know, businesses starting to open in, in, in the community. So walk through a little bit what the neighborhood has been through and, and, and what it's like now, obviously dealing with the pandemic, because it's, it's really a mixed use community. Sure. Um, and I mean, you said it, right? There was a time that many of us remember when it was meatpacking co-ops and plants right mm -hmm. alongside some cutting edge fashion designers setting up shop there, right? <clears throat> um, and at the same time, also strong history of nightlife in the neighborhood all throughout the 70s and 80s, right alongside this, this very commercial district. Yeah. So looking at the 2000s, looking at just the past 10 years, retail, food and hospitality really took hold in the neighborhood. We're a commercial district surrounded by, um, like you mentioned, the resident, the neighborhoods of Chelsea and the village. And what we've seen in the past 10 years is remarkable. Uh, we often talk about the evolution of the neighborhood, uh, the type of businesses that are there, the type of consumer that likes to spend time there. And, you know, we sort of bucket those out and what our approach is for how to talk to those folks. You know, we have a significant workforce Pre-COVID, we estimated that there were between 25,000 and 30,000 people who worked in the meatpacking district, you know, day in and day out. Um, we have some major anchor tenants, right? Google has a big campus in the district, many other tech companies, and then a whole bunch of retail. Theory and Rag and Bone both have their quarter headquarters there. DBF, Helmut Lang, 
um, all different types of, of sort of creative um, workforce is there. Um, and then you've got the folks who come because now we're home to the Whitney Museum. The Whitney Museum moved to the Meatpacking District six years ago this year. So that's really a cultural anchor for us. Um, and you pair that with the High Line and Chelsea Market. And you find this whole visitor coming to experience the lunch, the art, the shopping crowd. Um, then you look a little bit later as the sun starts to set and the happy hour bars get a little bit busier. Um, the dinner reservations fill up. And of course, you know, nightclubbing has been a long uh, part of the district, not as much as it was, you know, today as it used to be. Um, but we're really starting to see some, some, some specs of that come back to life. So we're looking forward to that. So talk a little bit about how reliant um, the community has been on tourist, tourism, because as a New Yorker, I love to walk through the neighborhood. And um, pre-pandemic, you know, I feel like you could hear every language being spoken on the streets, particularly some of the really beautiful hotels that you have anchored in the neighborhood. So what do you see as far as tourism now and where do you think it's going? I mean, thankfully, we are seeing an uptick. I see that both when I walk around the neighborhood, we're seeing in our, our pedestrian count numbers, right, that have... Um, counters across the district. And when we talk to our, our friends at New York and Company, right, we see that thankfully tourism is coming back. When the ground fell out, you know, last March, April, and retailers thought they had a, a local customer base, they didn't realize that they had a local customer base, but a significant portion of their sales was still coming from visitors. And whether that was the tri-state national market or of course the international market, which is really predominant um, in our part of town, that was a major hit for everybody. So what I think folks are realizing is, okay, we took, have been taught thinking about, well, how do we do a reintroduction um, to the five boroughs and get folks to realize as a New Yorker, you come back, you enjoy, it might not be a neighborhood you've been to in a number of years, but I can guarantee you will find a way for you to have a good time there, no matter your interests, right? Yeah. And then the same thing holds true. We wanna make sure that we are still a desirable neighborhood for those doing the day trip from Connecticut or Westchester, or whether they're flying in from Iowa or California, and then those making their way back here from Europe and Asia. You know, it's, it's so important to make sure that we remain a desirable place. Um, and I believe um, that we are, we, we are, and we're well primed to welcome a lot of those folks back. Terrific, I'm happy to hear that. Talk a little bit about the public space, because there's really some, you know, beautiful architecture and, and some um, wide avenues. How, how have you utilized the public space and and what's your vision in terms of what could be accomplished? Absolutely, we, um, we always say that our strongest asset is the neighborhood itself. It has great bones, right? It's an industrial neighborhood. It's a landmark district, the Gansport Market Historic District. And we were thrilled to be a partner on a reconstruction of the neighborhood. The, we got city, state and federal dollars to really make permanent 30,000 square feet of public plazas, all to landmark um, historic spec cobblestones. Um, our roadways were all redone. Um, and so really when you're there, you feel different. The space outside, it feels really good. And my job as, a, as an executive director of a business improvement district, right? I have management over the public realm. And so if I can make it a good place to do business, whether it's upstairs or downstairs, it's a good place to be. And so to me, that's also good for the quality of life of New Yorkers. Those who are passing through, whether they're walking the dog and grabbing coffee in the morning, or you know, they're coming on the weekend. It's a 360 thing for me. And the pandemic presented a number of opportunities. One of them, um, you know, the open streets program in the city. Yes. And that's been a real thing that we've put the flag in the ground for, expanding our sort of pedestrianization of the neighborhood and really experimenting in ways that we previously used to not be allowed to in ways of, of treating the street and thinking about the street differently. It was a flashpoint for us when sort of back of the napkin calculation, 
building face to building space, the space outside, 80% was dedicated to cars and just 20%, even with our expansive public plazas, was just for pedestrians. Mm. And so put on top of that, the sidewalk cafes and everything that happens on the sidewalk. So we were thrilled um, when open restaurants came in line, when we could start managing the street differently. I mean, for us, it's all about the time of day. Where were your open streets? We've got them on Gansevoort Street, Little West 12th, and 13th Street. They're all one block treatments really, and then a small portion of 9th Avenue also. But for us, we realized early on that it's all about time of day because in the morning, um, you got the HVAC and the plumbers and the construction guys in the neighborhood. Um, you got food being, wholesale food and goods being delivered, right? So that commercial nature of the district is, is taking place in the morning. And then when the afternoon comes around, the restaurants are filling up and, and people are using the streets differently. And so we've begun to prioritize it differently. And then at nighttime, of course, you know, whether it's restaurants staying open later or as nightlife makes its way back, um, we wanna be supporting that in a, in a very distinct way for the city. So I know the city has allowed that to continue. What's your, what's your take on it? Yeah, we are continuing to figure out how to make it work the best possible way that it can. Um, we see us as a prime neighborhood to experiment with broader pedestrianization. We did a big study, you know, as a part of our work last year and looked at neighborhoods in London and Paris and Hong Kong and Shanghai um, and many cities in Latin America that have bustling commercial corridors um, and very little vehicular traffic. So how do we make that work in Manhattan? Uh, and that's some of the stuff we're experimenting with right now, be conversations with DOT and businesses, but really wanting to make sure that when we do something, we do it to the best of our ability and that it looks really good at the same time. So we were happy to install um, these hexagonal pivot planters as our, our open streets barricades. And those were installed back in June and they're a first for the city. And so we're excited to be able to have that look and feel on the street to let you know it's a little bit different here um, and for a reason. You have to keep up because the architecture in the neighborhood is just breathtaking. Yeah, that's the thing, thank you. <clears throat> So you have so many different brands. I mean, some luxury stores that other neighborhoods would die to have as anchors. I, I heard Rolex recently opened a store in the district. They have. So talk about what else is new in the area that people might not have realized if they haven't been in the neighborhood over the last few months. Sure. Well, you've got a number of new tenants, actually. I'm delighted to say that. A number that opened during the pandemic. You mentioned um, Rolex. Um, we had Bally open, uh, a luxury Swiss brand. Um, Bell Staff, which is a longtime British luxury label, opened right before the pandemic on Gansevoort Street. And then a couple of new boutiques have opened also. Um, one is called Two Minds. That's on Gansevoort Street. It's a luxury men's and women's boutique that is, has been brought to life by the sort of original group behind the store, Jeffrey, which was a luxury fashion store on, on 14th Street. They did Jeffrey closed up shop but happy to have this new boutique in the neighborhood. And then another one on 13th Street um, called TA by a young black woman, um, Telsha Anderson. She opened um, an amazing women's boutique during the pandemic and that's doing really, really well. Um, and then there's a number of new food concepts that have opened in the neighborhood um, and more coming online. So we've got what I like to call a, a nice mix because we have sort of our, our introductory luxury level we call introductory luxury. So um, brands like Theory, Rag and Bone, right? Approachable, sit, work hard, save money. That's where you can start. And then of course there's stuff at the top tier also, right? Hermes, um, Brunello Cuccinelli, um, much more expensive, very much what is in line with that, with the, the idea of luxury. So 
we're seeing more and more of that on both ends of the spectrum um, and excited to see how that plays out across the board. Because we know, you know, for a commercial district, healthy mix of retail is how they thrive. Well, you guys, from what I hear, are taking window shopping to the next level with a series of performances and storefronts. Could you share yes, a little bit about we that? Were, so, gosh, back in March, um, when everybody was starved for culture and coming out of, you know, the winter, um, this theater company, the Tectonic Theater Project, approached me and they said, we want to do um, a show called Seven Deadly Sins across seven different vacant storefronts in the Meatpacking District. And people will watch it from the street and the sidewalk and performers will safely perform behind glass for this performance. And so I said, okay, now <laughs> let's make it work. And thankfully, the city was supportive. Amazing talent that came in, almost 200 people working on this, this show between the actors, the stagehands, the set designers. I mean, it is a top tier show. And so they just closed uh, the show, unfortunately just closed yesterday, July 25th, um, but they ran six nights a week from the middle of June through the end of July, bringing close to 250 people a night to the neighborhood to experience theater on the streets of New York City in a way that nobody's really ever experienced before. I love that. So it, it was an awesome thing to watch. And you know, speaking of the streetscape, 13th Street is a quieter street for us. And so I said to the, the theater folks, I said, let's see if we can, you know, you can put the majority of your shows on, on 13th Street. It won't be too busy. Well, when you add seating, and 250 bodies to a street, <laughs> suddenly everybody else wants to walk down that street too. And so that you know, really made us start to think about, okay, how do you activate the street um, to get folks to be intrigued and drive that foot traffic? Because for me at the end of the day, economic development is about attention to the neighborhood and then foot traffic. And if you have a foot traffic that matches your retail and hospitality mix, you're gonna have a successful neighborhood. I mean, I just love that concept of bringing, you know, art and culture to these storefronts that are empty. Do you, do you mind sharing how was that supported for other communities to just, you know, try something like that? Because of our open streets program, we managed, um, it all took place on open streets. So we have a pedestrian management team that really worked, works to make sure those blocks were safe. And then the theater company had ushers that stayed with the, with the group of, of viewers that went from show to show because they did eight different shows around the district. It started at Purgatory, and then you visited the seven sins, one show each sin. And really what happened was nobody knew what it was gonna be like, and the restaurants were a little confused, and, and then everything just sort of clicked, like things do in New York City. And it worked out. Like there's a couple of bands that come to play at Pastis, right? The Buskers, and they're a really good band. And they learned the timing of when the show was breaking, and wow. that's when they would step in and start playing at Pastis. Right, so there was this really amazing sort of click of everything happening. But, and then, so we got willing property owners, super thankful to Aurora Capital, William Gottlieb Real Estate and TF Cornerstone for donating these retail spaces to the theater companies to make it happen. And then it was the city's Department of Transportation that allowed a, a 29 day concession permit, concession agreement to exist so this theater company um, could set up shop and sell tickets and, you know, give New Yorkers that culture we've all been craving. I love that. I mean, the creativity. Talk to yeah. me about what other art or installations might be coming in the area. Sure. Well, we've got, I know I mentioned the Whitney Museum and, you know, in the High Line itself is a distinct type of stage also, but, you know, the bid is really looking to lean into more arts and culture programming. Um, and we're partnering with this amazing organization called Art Noir to um, produce a program called From a Place of a Place. Um, this will launch on August 12th at a gallery space in two Gansevoort, 
We'll have two gallery shows that will feature 10 artists during each show. This will run from August to the end of October, focusing on Black voices in New York City. Um, there'll be two artists in residence. We will have a piece of public art on Gansevoort Plaza, which will also act as a stage for a series of performances that we're gonna be having. So from the bid perspective, that's some of the a big programming we're looking forward to launching middle of August, and that will run through the end of October. And also weaving in um, youth and senior programming with our friends at the Hudson Guild, um, which is a settlement house and, and really amazing social service organization up on 17th Street. But then we've had a, a new gallery that opened just uh, last week on Little West 12th Street. Um, you know, we have a number of small galleries. It's not just about the Whitney Museum. Um, we've got Ivy Brown Gallery, which is an amazing gallery that's been in the neighborhood for a very long time. White Columns, which is a nonprofit experimental art gallery in the neighborhood for a long time. Um, Fort Gansevoort is a really cutting edge gallery. So you can come and get your, your taste of arch and culture sort of high and low at the same time here. Talk up a little bit about Little Island on the west side and, and does that really kind of create any overflow or synergies or anything else? Because it's just a, you know, kind of a masterpiece on the west side. Yeah. A big fan of Hudson River Park and Little Island. You get to those places by going through the meatpacking district or you come from there and you go through the meatpacking district sort of when you're on your way back somewhere into Manhattan. Um, so we have definitely seen a wonderful, a really healthy increase um, in foot traffic that is certainly overflowing. And I think benefiting our businesses across the board, um, whether that park is a, a destination for New Yorkers to come and visit, um, or it's just becoming a more casual spot, especially in the mornings um, for people to be passing through, have a nice sort of, it's a really amazing escape from the city. So we're definitely seeing a positive um, overflow to that. And it doesn't stop there. You know, you have City Winery that's open now at Pier 57. Yes. Tribeca Film will have offices there. Gansevoort Peninsula is another park that's being built just on the other side of the Whitney off the Hudson. So there's some really exciting things happening on the edges of the district that again, you either are coming into meatpacking when you leave or you're going through us to get there. So happy to, to really benefit from all that good public work. Yeah, what a terrific thriving neighborhood you work to create. So talk a little bit about the new administration. There's going to be a new mayor, but also really a new city council. What, what would your message be to some of the new people taking office in terms of what you think needs to be prioritized for your community? I always hope that any incoming administration, as much as they have their ideas, right, and they should, everybody needs good ideas, especially good leaders, they should also be willing to recognize the partners that exist already for the city and bids, whether you're the Meatpacking District or Times Square Alliance or you know Graham Avenue in Brooklyn, we need to make sure that the city knows that partners exist um, and that we can do some really great work when the city lets us do that. So that's a critical thing for me, but I'm also, I'm, I'm, I'm not shy and cities around the world are eclipsing New York and how they are changing for the better right now. And I think we need some really bold thinking and some bold leadership. And we've got a little ways to go to see what, you know, we're in sort of the general election now, if you will. We know, you know, we're, we're a heavy democratic town. It's very likely um, that the nominee, Eric Adams, will, will be the next mayor, but there's a race ahead of us. I think, you know, we've heard him speak a lot about public and private partnerships. I think that may come on to be a really important part of his administration. How can neighborhoods benefit from that? Bids certainly have a formula for how we can leverage our abilities to do work and raise money um, and work with you know, city, state and feds to, to make stuff happen. So my thing is, look, we exist. We're not going away no matter if, who, who is the mayor, right? Who the city council member is. 
So we just want to make sure that we're, we have a seat at the table because as you said, we have our, our ear to the ground in a, in a way that the mayor doesn't. And I wouldn't expect the mayor to, quite frankly. Um, so to make sure that we have open lines of communication is really going to be a priority for me um, going to the next administration. Well, Jeffrey, you really helped create one of the most you know spectacular communities in all of New York City and, and obviously Manhattan. And it's uh, you know great to have you on and share more. And everyone should go out and, and check out the Meatpacking District if you haven't been there recently and help support the businesses that are there and the culturals that are there and all the activities going on. So thank you so much. Absolutely, my pleasure. Like we said, we, you can spend an hour, you can spend a day, you can spend a weekend. Really appreciate this conversation. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again. Make sure to subscribe to Schneps Connects wherever you get your podcasts or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. 